It's great to see you all. Uh, it's really fun to get away from Princeton. Um, most of us would have very much to worry about for the next couple of days. And uh, that makes this a really strategic and potentially very, very uh, significant time for each one of us uh, in our lives to think about God and who He is and, and who He's, he's inviting us to be. Um, how we think uh, about a person has a huge impact. We all know this on, on how, we, how we treat them, um, how we relate to them, uh, how we talk about them. So, yes, yeah, how many in the room raise your hand if you know who Carson uh, Wentz is? <laughs> That's less than half the room. So at dinner tonight, uh, Jay wanted to ask a small talk, <laughs> and uh, he looked at me until I, I, I brought up the Super Bowl, and I uh, found out that no one in my table, it's a table of guys, no one at the table knew who was in the Super Bowls. <laughs> uh, so this exercise may not help very much, but you know, how do you think about Carson Wentz? <laughs> and uh, a lot of you have no idea who I've talked to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but maybe some of you know that he's the quarterback for one of the two teams that the Super Bowl, Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah, okay. So now you know that he's a pro football player, right? And so, and so some of you, that's all you need to know. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, or maybe now you know he plays for the Philadelphia Eagles. And perhaps you grew up in Dallas, Texas. <laughs> in which case, you have Dallas Cowboys blood in your veins. And so you hear he plays for the Philadelphia Eagles, and your immediate response is, I hate the Eagles. Right? So, I don't think very much of Carson Wentz. I'm glad he's out for the season and can't play the Super Bowl, but it's hard ACL and LCL and meniscus, right? You know, so you might, if you're, if you're a diehard Cowboys fan, that doesn't really make you happy with Carson Wentz. Okay, but then suppose you learn that he's also a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Committed to loving Christ and serving others. Well, I mean, that creates for Dallas Cowboys fans who's a Christian and don't hate Christ. But my point is the more you know about a person, that changes, of course, how you think about them, how you relate to them, how you might treat them, how you might talk about them with others. And sometimes because we only know one side of the person, we are missing something really, really important about them. Which leads me to a, a more important question than parts of events, and that is, how do you think of Jesus? What is he like? And over the next few nights, as we look into the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, one of my hopes and prayers is that all of us might come to see Jesus in, in a new 
want us to be thinking about another one that goes right along with this. How does Jesus think about us? How does he see you? And our open prayer is also that these studies might cause you to think in a fresh way about that question and what the implications of the answers to that question might be. We're going to be looking at the book of Revelation, actually only the first three chapters. And Revelation, some of you, if you know it at all, uh, know that it's a unique book. It's a daunting book. I've had uh, more than one person respond on hearing that we're going to be looking at Revelation. They're like, whoa, uh, nobody looks at Revelation. <laughs> nobody does that. Uh, because it's, it's hard. Uh, the name Revelation uh, comes right from the, the opening words in Greek of, of the book. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That Greek word is apocalypsis. Uh, who you might recognize the word apocalypse. And that word describes an unveiling or a disclosing of truth. The book of Revelation is filled with visions that the Apostle John, assuming he is the author, I believe he is, that he received, which are described, uh, these visions, in highly symbolic language. And that makes the book, as a whole, difficult to interpret and at times difficult to understand. It also combines elements of prophecy, uh, predictive uh, prophecy, and also it has features uh, of an epistle, which John will say in uh, verse 4, John, the author to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of the king, and the ruler of kings on earth. And so that has a form somewhat of an epistle. And what we're going to be looking at over the next several nights in, in chapters 2 and 3 are seven letters that are directed to seven churches in Asia. So it's uh, a prophetic book. It's, it's, it's some, it has some aspects of an epistle and has that main revelation of Apocalypse's Apocalypse. That word, some of you will know, actually describes a genre of literature which is characterized by this kind of highly symbolic language. And um, in the Bible, in our Bibles, probably the closest parallels would be the books of Daniel in the Old Testament and Zechariah. Yes, uh, Revelation can be difficult to interpret and to understand, yet the main themes emerge, I think, clearly and powerfully. I want to highlight just a few of those. After John greets the church in, in and from Jesus, he says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And the first thing that emerges and that we need to keep in mind before everything else is the reading Revelation is that Christ, Jesus Christ, is a Savior who loves the church. He loves it, as John says right here. He loves it enough to give himself for it. And that's the message of the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And here John says again, to the one who loves us and has 
freed us from our sins by his blood, by his death upon the cross. To him be the glory of dominion forever and ever. Christ loves the church. He's a Savior who loves the church enough to give himself for it. He's a Savior who loves the church enough to come for the church. And so John continues in verse 7 and says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. He is coming with the clouds. He is coming for his bride. And the book of Revelation consummates with the marriage supper of Christ, the, the Lamb of God, and the church, his bride. So this is the Christian's hope, that Christ loves us and gave himself for us, and that Christ will return for us. And, and we want to keep that in view as we proceed. But also, and here's where I want to think about another way of seeing Jesus. Sometimes what I just said gets reduced down to something like this. Jesus died for my sins so that I can go to heaven when I die. You probably all want to say that effect. And what might happen if that's how we summarize who Jesus is, we might begin to think that Jesus has very little to do with and perhaps very little concern for life, for life in between. I trusted Christ when I was in junior high, and I know I'm going to heaven. What in the world does Jesus have to do with all that in between? And so part of our revelation, the second thing that emerges, is that Christ is also a king who rules the nations. I already read that verse. But also he is Lord over the church. So in the first place, yes, Christ is a savior who loves the church, but in the second place, Christ is a Lord over the church. And one of the things, one of the Bible will be fresh for you is a vision of Christ here, not only as Savior, but Christ set forth in glory and majesty, in dominion and in power as a, as a great king, as a mighty ruler over the nations, but also as, as a great king who will be delivering you and me out of the dominion of darkness has called us into his kingdom. John says that he has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Priests who have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Priests who are called to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Priests who are called to declare the excellencies of him who calls out of darkness into his marvelous light. He has made us to be priests to his God in his kingdom. And Jesus' kingship, and that means, among other things, that he cares deeply for his subjects. And how we behave matters profoundly to him. How we behave for Jesus is profoundly significant. It matters not only for for us, for you as an individual, and you're going to see that as we look at these letters, but it also matters for others, it matters for the world. 
because as subjects of the true king, you are his representatives in this world, his ambassadors, his diplomats. And Jesus cares enough for you, he cares enough for the church that he will not leave you alone. He will not let you go your own way. He will mess with you. And that's what we see in these messages in chapters 2 and 3. And of course, on the one hand, the thought that Jesus cared for his church is so profound comes as a great comfort and a great blessing. Who doesn't want to know that the God uh, of the universe cares deeply for, for him or for her? But this care that Jesus has for us and for the church also is sometimes painful. Because being with Christ, belonging to Christ, also means suffering for Christ. And John makes it, 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 it very clear that, that one of the reasons that he is writing these letters, uh, and, and one of the reasons that God has commissioned him, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was in the Spirit when I received this vision. Christian experience, in other words, has two sides. Yes, there's, there's the kingdom and the comfort of knowing that Christ is the conquering king, and, and the purpose of the book of Revelation is in part to give hope and to give encouragement to the church as it faces difficulty as it faces persecution and hardship and, and it, it, it's also very honest about the fact that the difficulty and the persecution that we might face by being identified with Jesus as our King is, is a difficulty that, that will come about because of our identification with Him. In other words, it's the suffering that accompanies a commitment to Christian belief and a commitment to Christian principles that because I am committed to this king that is going to make me in the eyes of others an enemy. Maybe bad analogy, but you know, if I did it to the Dallas Cowboys then it was the Eagles maybe an enemy. Right? And in this sense, our identification Jesus is my king means that, that I will face the same hatred, the same rejection, the same kind of uh, suffering that he faced on our behalf. And so Revelation is written to bring comfort, to bring hope to a church that is suffering. But many also argue that the Suffering, or, or not argument, it's, it's obvious that some of the suffering comes from the outside, but some of the difficulty and some of the things that Jesus is going to address come from within the church. And that leads me to another aspect of being united with Christ is not, not only this being with Him, being suffering with Him and for Him, but also being with Christ means being disciplined. 
mean, I suppose if, if you stick with the kingdom analogy, you, you, you could say being part of this kingdom means there are certain rules that the king has, certain virtues that he wants his people to embody and, and, and to fulfill. And Jesus cares enough about his church, I said earlier, that he, he's not just going to ignore it, that Jesus will discipline his people. And sometimes that discipline is, is in the form of what we might call training and education as Jesus is remaking us into citizens of, of his kingdom. But that discipline also comes and can come in the form of correction or a chastisement when we are faithful to him as our Lord. So Jesus is not only a sweet savior, he is a sweet savior, but he is also a king to the rules, and he is a lord over his church, and that's a major theme. Which leads into the final one that I'll mention, that he is also, as a king, with a, with a kingdom that is advancing, he is a mighty warrior. And I asked at the beginning, how do you think of Jesus? And I do think that if you will read the book of Revelation, it will challenge perhaps overly sentimental vision of Jesus. It might challenge uh, an overly, uh, a bit of a naive vision of who Jesus is. It might challenge uh, perhaps overly me-centered vision of who Jesus is. He is a mighty warrior. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him John says of his return, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Why would they wail? Because he came once as a savior, now he is going to return as a judge. And so when, when John sees Jesus, I'll just read these verses that are in your, in your booklet. When John sees him, how does he describe it? How is he, is he portrayed? He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I heard the hand behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of those lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. Hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet. As though dead. And he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. John sees a vision of Christ that is so magnificent and so beautiful and so fearful that he falls on his feet as though dead. Because before him, and you have to realize, 
don't take this description like finding the home that I can draw this. This is not a picture. This is symbolic language of, of what this uh, uh, manifestation of Christ came, uh, 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 came across to him as. One, he says, like the Son of Man, a heavenly figure. This comes out of the book of Daniel. A heavenly figure who will judge the nations, clothed in, in uh, fabulous clothing of priesthood and royalty, of brilliant white hair, uh, emphasizing his purity, his perfection, blazing eyes, able to see the inmost secrets of the human heart, feet, uh, established as a warrior of burnished bronze, powerful and strong, a voice like the roar of many waters, his authority, his power, in his right hand holding seven stars, his sovereignty, and from his mouth a sharp two-edged sword, which is the divine word of power and judgment and authority. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength, brilliant, blinding, awesome majesty. He recognizes that he is in the presence of God himself, and he falls on his feet as though dead. Many of you have read C.S. Lewis's children's novel, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, about the four children who pass through the wardrobe's portal to find the kingdom of Narnia, and it's in the spell of the White Witch, and Aslan, the king, is nowhere to be found. The children set out to explore, and at one point they come to the home of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, still faithful to Aslan, the missing king. And the Beavers are telling the kids that Aslan is about to return, and he will set things right, and the prophecy suggests that they may even have a central role in what's about to happen. And so they're excited, and they're, they're a little bit nervous, and the two girls go, what is Aslan really, what's he like? If he is a king who is safe in reason, that will certainly be a great comfort in life of battle, being all the lost. And so Lucy says, is, is he a man? Aslan a man? Said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will hear and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most, or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. And I love that story because I think it gets to something that I hope that we can get at today and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday. Jesus Christ, you have the privilege of serving the King 
who has triumphed over everything we fear, and rightfully so. He has triumphed over Satan, he's triumphed over sin, he has triumphed over death itself. And that is good news. But he calls us as his followers not to a comfortable or an easy calling. He calls us to a life of faithfulness to him, and the overcomer in the book of Revelation is the one who remains faithful to Jesus. And he calls us to lives of obedience. And that's the side that sometimes I think we need to see a little bit more of than the sentimental Jesus is the Jesus who is King and who is Lord. He is not safe, but he is wonderful. And though following him is not always easy, with Jesus we are on the right side. He says to us, in the world, yes, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. 